Welcome to the Slam Radio Podcast, featuring TMA with Nick Hamilton, Extra Dose. It's time for TMA Extra Dose. You can follow along on Twitter, at Slam Radio XM. Now, TMA Extra Dose with Nick Hamilton, only on Sirius What's going XM, on, everybody? Welcome to another Slam edition Radio. of TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be on this planet. Thanks for joining me. And uh, another jam-packed show in the works. Lots to talk about. Brett Favre out here making headlines once again, talking out the side of his throat. We'll get into that. Does he have a point? Also, USC scandal amongst the football team. Yeah, that's right. Got some players doing some underhanded deeds, allegedly. We'll find out what's going on with that. And the Los Angeles Dodgers are just one game away, one win away, I should say, from winning the World Series. Imagine that, something they haven't done since 1988. We'll talk to my special guest, uh, Nightfall Media writer, as well as the host of Camelo's Corner, Chris Camelo, to get his insight on what the Dodgers can do to capture that one win. All that and more coming up here on TMA with Nick Hamilton. Now, make sure you follow me on all things social media, at Nick Hamilton LA. Brett Favre. Now, we know he's a Hall of Fame quarterback, played many, many years with the Green Bay Packers, most notably, but he, he was able to spread his wealth and spread his wings with the Minnesota Vikings. Originally, uh, he was with the Atlanta Falcons before moving on to the Packers. And he does all those uh, Wrangler jean commercials, which I've never seen anybody in my life wear Wrangler jeans. But, hey, obviously there's an audience for him. I'm not knocking him. Just haven't seen it. But what I have seen recently is Brett Favre has made some comments regarding the NBA and the NFL as it pertains to social activism. As we all know, social activism has been one of the mainstays in 2020 along with COVID-19. We've all seen the NBA players take a stand against it uh, by wearing the phrases and names uh, on their jerseys, make, uh, taking knees, make, uh, wearing T-shirts, this, and using their platform to bring more awareness to these issues about police brutality, racism, inequality, bigotry, and things of that nature, along with the WNBA players. Uh, we've seen even some football players take knees and, and use their platforms to raise awareness about social injustice uh, that has been going on in this country for the last 400 plus years, mainly against black people and other people of color as well. Let me say this. You cannot blame the decline in viewership, whether it's the NBA, the NBA finals, the NFL. You can't blame that on social activism. That is a lazy, racist, narrative that continues to be pushed and mainly by 45 but Brett Favre wanted to join the party because Brett Favre has been a supporter of 45 since he's been in office here's what here's what bothers me about Brett Favre Brett Favre likes to ride both sides of the fence and in this situation you cannot do that you're either right or left there is no in between Brett Favre has tried to be or acted as though he was a catalyst for black athletes because he said countless times, hey, black people shouldn't be discriminated against. If you discriminate, discriminate against anybody in this country, you don't belong here and you shouldn't be here. I agree. But then in the same breath, you cannot go and support an individual who, who has been as divisive and as racist and misogynistic as a person that you say you showing loyalty to, which is 45. Now, he has every right to support whoever he wants. No different than any, any of us in this country have a right to support who we want to support. But when you have a man that is, a, that is anti what you just said as far as being racially insensitive and discriminating against black folks, well, that's exactly what that person has done. So how can you how can you side with the person that goes against what you said? So either you meant what you said 
or you were just saying it because it was the popular and comfortable thing to do. I'm going to lean more towards it was a popular and more comfortable thing to do because you didn't say this in 2016 when Colin Kaepernick took a knee for this same thing that we're all talking about now in 2020 and, and raising more awareness in 2020. And so you want to sit here and say, and I quote, let me quote Brett Favre real quick because I don't want to misquote him. He says the NBA and the NFL are struggling with lower ratings as fans clearly do not want political messaging mixed in with their sports. So how should the league support and promote anti-racism positions without becoming political and alienating fans? Let's be clear about something. Fans are not watching because they're not watching or they have other devices that they can watch on tablets, iPads, phones, iPhones. They don't have Nielsen boxes in them, so they have no way of knowing who's watching what, much like you can do on a television screen. Right. Because we all know most people are aware at home because we're in the midst of a pandemic for the most part. Or they're glued to somebody's TV or some type of device where they can get their sports, whether it's the NFL on Sundays or Mondays or Thursdays, or it's college football on Saturdays, or it's the NBA when we had the NBA finals, right? People were glued in. Or the World Series now when the Dodgers and the Rays are going at it inside of a bubble. So that is a false narrative to push. And first of all, it's not about politics. This is not social activism and dealing with people's lives and people dying at the hands of police officers who abuse their power and have been abusing their power for decades is not a political stance. It is a life issue. It is a human life issue. The reason why you keep saying it's political and you want to get away from the life, the human life issue, because you don't see black people as as full humans, because if you did, you wouldn't be so quick to call it a political issue because politics have nothing to do with it. Politicians have inserted themselves into the, the cause and into the movement for their own agenda and propaganda. They, We as people, those who have been protesting on the ground, and I know several people that have been protesting on the ground. I haven't been to any protest. Only thing I've done with my platform is disseminate information about what's going on in various communities whether it's marches, whether it's voting, whether it's uh, letting you know who to call as far as your, your local po uh, political person to, to put more pressure to getting justice served on behalf of victims that have fallen to police brutality and murders of white from, from the hands of white supremacists. So that's what I've been doing, right? But at the same time, it's not political. It's only political if you choose to make it political. Because you want to take the importance and the ingredients away from what it really is, which is a human rights issue, which is the injustices that black people have suffered from the time we were stolen and, to, and brought upon these shores 400 plus years ago. So don't sit up here and try to make it seem like, oh, well, people don't want to see activism. People don't want to see. You don't know what the hell everybody wants to see. Nobody has polled every single person. That is asinine to make an assessment of, of, of that nature. And not only that, let's be clear. Let me give you some real facts. The NBA ratings were down 49% from a year ago, right? The NFL has seen a 13% drop thus far this season. But what's interesting, Brett Favre only mentioned the NFL and the NBA, which are about 75% black. But what he failed to mention, it, and again, this is what raises my eyebrow about Brett Favre's sincerity. He never mentioned the NHL, which has about 5%, I believe, 5 to 6% black players in that league. 5 to 6%. But the Stanley Cup finals were down 61%. Now, Brett, if you really, about, if you really try to push this narrative about politics being involved, the NHL got involved with social activism. Some players even spoke out about it. Some players skipped games as a result. But you never mention the NHL because it's predominantly a white sport. It's white, it's white, predominantly white players in the sport. I don't want to call it a white sport, but it's, it's white players in the sport. Let me be clear about that. You never mention that. 
But you you make sure you mention the NFL and NBA. Why? Because you have a problem with black players, apparently, expressing their views and utilizing their platforms outside of trying to sell some product to customers. You're actually criticizing them for using their platform for the good, to raise awareness. And you side with the man who is against that because that same man in 45 made sure that he, he elevated that narrative about, oh, they need to leave the politics to politics. Let football be football and basketball be basketball. Where the hell have you been? Politics have been a part of sports since, I believe, the 50s and the 60s. You don't remember the meeting with Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jim Brown for lack, for black folks not having civil rights in this country? That wasn't that 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 wasn't so, uh, social injustice being brought to the forefront, or in the nineties, or in the in two thousands, and now here we are in twenty twenty, and you wanted to say football should be football and basketball. What are you stuck in the forties, man? You must have the you you have the memory of Dory from from Finding Nemo, apparently. Because there's no way in hell you could honestly think that that's okay to say. And you honestly believe that. If you do, yikes. And we all know that everybody's struggling with ratings. Everybody's struggling. Sports is not sports. I don't know about you all listening out there, but it hasn't felt like the NBA Finals didn't feel like the NBA Finals to me. Even though I watched it and the Lakers won, there's no debate about that. The Lakers won. They, they, they faced every opponent that was in front of them. It wasn't their fault. It was circumstances beyond their control. But the NFL doesn't feel like the NFL this year. College football really doesn't feel like college football, like we normally would be in, in more intense and more excited about college football. Major League Baseball, the World Series doesn't feel like the World Series to me. It feels like a remixed version of it. And it doesn't feel like that. So that's why I'm saying this is bogus. And Brett Favre, you got to be careful because guys like Brett Favre may have an ulterior motive trying to capitalize and trying to get his name back in the paper. But at the same time, align himself with people that are anti-racist, um, that are not anti-racist, excuse me. And so you got to be very careful with that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not calling Brett Favre a racist because I don't know the man. But when you line yourself up, if you walk like a duck and quack, it quacks like a duck, it ain't no damn mongoose. So you got to be very, very clear. I don't, I don't agree with it. Um, I think Brett Favre needs to sit down and have a seat and be quiet and mind his business and get back on his tractor and mind his farm. And keep social activism and, and social injustice out of your mouth because apparently you're not helping the cause. You're being a detriment to it. And speaking of detriments, the USC Trojans, yes, as they prepare and get ready for their Pac-12 season starting November the 7th, uh, there's been some situations that have gone on as it pertains to the USC players. Uh, in case you have not heard, several USC players are, are to be questioned under oath uh, regarding an unemployment employment development department scandal where several Trojan players may be involved in uh, receiving uh, benefits improperly from the unemployment department here in, in California. Um, investigators have concluded that there's been some foul play and some uh, improper benefits being handed out and agreed to uh, when it comes to unemployment let, let me say this before i go any further there are about 40 million americans that are filed for unemployment in this country a lot to do with the pandemic uh where businesses have been able to close down or people have been furloughed and eventually laid off uh some people were just outright you know laid off and fired from their jobs and they have families that they have to support along with themselves um i was i was too affected by the pandemic and i too uh had to be subject to uh, unemployment for a period of time because, uh, you know, there was no real money because I had nowhere to go, right? There was no stories to cover. There was no places to go to. And that's how I may mostly make my livelihood. 
So I know how hard it was for me to get unemployment. There's 40 million Americans that are struggling to this day and that need the unemployment. And there are families that I know personally that have still have yet to receive their unemployment benefits that are struggling. There were a couple of people that lost their, their homes or lost their apartments because they could not afford to pay rent because they had nothing to pay rent with. And you got a kid who is in college, who is a, 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 a young man who I don't know personally. So I'm not going to cast the expert and say he's the most evil individual in the world because that would be unfair to him. So I'm not going to I'm not going to say that. But McNair McClain, who was a USC wide receiver, was caught up in a scandal where he implied he applied rather for un, unemployment benefits that he was not due. He had no business applying for pandemic unemployment assistance here in the state of California. There's no reason for that. Once it was discovered that he did and he took, he received improper benefits, he was suspended back uh, in early uh, September from the football team while they were under investigation, a federal investigation, I might add. Because we all heard about the stories about people being scammed uh, as a result, people not receiving their benefits. So this guy's no different. And he's at the center of this investigative probe by the feds. And usually when the feds come after you, they have a 93%, I believe, success rate, which means they do their homework before they try to go after you because they know they, they have a high conviction rate. And the reason they have a high conviction rate is because they do their due diligence. They don't sit up there or are quick to rush to judgment. T- they really take their time. And I'm not defending the feds, but I'm just letting you know how it goes. So when the feds come after you, trust me, they've done their homework. And unless you have a top-notch lawyer that knows how to deal with the federal government, and there have been, t- there have been cases where the federal government has lost cases. Don't get me wrong. But it's very, very tough to defeat the federal government when they have a 93% success rate. And this dude is caught red-handed, taking benefits. And then he went on to say, oh, well, somebody from the from the unemployment office uh, helped me fill it out. So what? You knew good and hell well you had no business taking improper benefits because you weren't entitled to any benefits. Why would you put yourself in that position? You're going to school to play a sport that, you lo- that you've been playing since you were a kid and have an opportunity to get not only get an education, but to play for a prestigious university like USC when it comes to college football. When you think of college football, there are certain schools that come to mind. The Ohio States, the Michigans, the Miamis, the Alabamas. The, the Oklahomas of the world, the USC's, the Oregon's of the world. And you want to do something stupid like this? And he had it. So they, there was a press conference on Sunday where him, there, his mother, the young man's mother, uh, his brother who also plays on the team, which is a linebacker, Abdul Malik McClain, uh, wide receiver Tyler Vons, um, and several other USC players stood behind him in solidarity. And also, which is the wrong dude to have, I will say this much, Najee Ali, who is the biggest opportunist I have ever seen. The dude only comes around when there's cameras to be placed in front of him. That is the only time he comes around. He is the biggest opportunist I've ever seen in my life. And yes, I've gotten into it with him on occasion and yes he's blocked me like the sucker that he is and so this is why i was so surprised when they had him speak this is not the dude you want him to speak on your behalf you need to speak on your own behalf and have an attorney present to speak for you to answer questions for you because you want to be reinstated back on the team because they believe that usc rushed to judgment and kicked him off well yes and no Maybe they did rush to judgment, but can you blame them? USC was under a modern-day death penalty many, many years ago because of of students receiving improper benefits, and the NCAA caught them red-handed, according to their reports, 
with improper benefits and gave them a modern day death penalty that almost decimated their program for football and basketball, more so on the football side. And it took them years to rebuild and get those scholarships back and rebuild that program to get it back half halfway to where it is right now. And you mean to tell me they don't have a right to be like, hey, man, they hear anything about suspect activity. They're not going to rush the judgment. Of course they are. Now, according to the L.A. Times, uh, Ryan Karchi, who's the USC beat writer, uh, the L.A. Times obtained, obtained a copy of a subpoena given to one of the players, which states that the recipient is required to appear before a grand jury in conjunction with, quote, an, an official criminal investigation being conducted by the Department of Labor, Office of Inspector General. And it's signed by Kerry uh, Quinn, who is the assistant U.S. attorney in the major fraud section. Hmm. Interesting. Now, Najee Ali, the, the, the individual, the opportunist I told you about before who claims to be a local civil rights activist, he said at the, at the news conference on Sunday that, quote, McClain was being treated like Michael Corleone, like he's the godfather, like he's part of a criminal enterprise that they're about to introduce the RICO Act upon him, end quote. Well, when you take improper benefits and you're a premier USC football player, it kind of goes with the territory and you're stealing money from the state that damn near doesn't have a whole lot of money to begin with. And you're stealing from individuals who really need that money because this kid did not need that money because he didn't work for it. So you tell me is USC wrong or is this kid wrong for taking benefits that he said somebody from the department, the unemployment department helped him fill out. You mean to tell me he don't have good common sense to, to figure out? Hey, man, this thing sounds shady. What he was trying to do is he was trying to creep on a come up. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like he was trying to creep on a come up and thought nobody was going to notice. Jeez, nobody would notice that you going to USC and starting and being on a team that is featured in the Pac-12, which is a Power 5 conference. Gee, nobody would ever figure out it was you, huh? How stupid can you be? So I can't necessarily blame USC because they don't want no problems. They've gone through enough problems. They try to keep a, as clean of an image as possible. So I don't blame them. And there's, I'm sure there's other students that they're going to interview with that grand jury. And let me tell you something, with that damn grand jury, it could be hit or miss. His least of his of that of McLean's worries is being kicked off the team. He better hope he doesn't do jail time for this. Because he's facing some serious jail time for this. So he better be he better be more focused on instead of worrying about getting back on a damn football team, worry about your freedom. Because your freedom is at stake, sir. And to me, that's way more important than playing every Saturday on a football team. Something that you exposed yourself to. Nobody forced you to do this. You chose to do that. So USC also made a choice. We'll keep we'll stay on this topic and make sure we keep you up to date on what's going on. Coming up on the other side of the break, we'll talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers and their quest to winning their first World Series since 1988. Can they get it done? All that and more here on TMA with Nick Hamilton. Make sure you stay tuned and check us out. We're here on Slam Radio, Sirius XM 145. Yo, what's up? Baby, let's go. This is Tua Tungle by Lloyd. Yo, Sway Calloway. This is Spice Adams. This is Michael, the playmaker everywhere. What's up? This is Grok, and you're listening to Slam, Slam Radio. Radio. Serious XM. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, folks. Welcome back to TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Slam Radio, Serious XM 145. Back in the house. That's right. The World Series, the first to two wins now, seems to be the winner and the team that would be able to hoist up that World Series trophy. Uh, the Dodgers finally got it done on Sunday night. Clayton Kershaw put in that work, got to about, uh, I would say, about six innings, uh, give or take an out or two, uh, before Dave Roberts was able to pull him. Uh, but he had incredible, incredibly excuse me, great run support. Uh, and he has been, had, had some great run support uh, in the last couple of uh, starts that he's had. In game one, he had great run support. And now in game five, uh, we'll get into the debacle that was game four, because I don't know. I still don't know what the hell happened with that. I'm, I don't know if many of you that are listening knows what the hell happened with game four. Uh, but we'll move 
move forward for game six tonight. Uh, Tony Gonsolin is going to be starting against the nemesis of the Dodgers. I like to call Blake Snell for the Tampa Bay Rays. We'll get into that and more. So to join me to break down the Dodgers, who I believe is an incredible baseball expert. Uh, you hear him. He's the host of his own podcast, Camelo's Corner, that you can find on all streaming platforms every week. Also, he's been made appearances on uh, several Fox Sports uh, radio affiliates around the Southern California area. And he is a writer for Nightfall Media. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome the one and only Chris Camello. What's going on, Chris? How you doing, man? Hey, Nick, that was one heck of an intro, man. Thank you so much for uh, hey, man. for talking me up. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Hey, man. Well, the invoice is in the mail. Just know that. <laughs> no one rides for free. No. Uh, but thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a, a great, interesting weekend uh, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, good and bad. Uh, we witnessed most recently game five, Clayton Kershaw, who actually broke the strikeout postseason record uh, who usurped, I believe, Justin Verlander uh, for that record. Uh, it was great to see uh, Kershaw smile again. It was great to see uh, the Dodgers kind of have some relief and kind of blow off some steam, uh, kind of not had a bubble guts as we've seen them have in game four. Uh, what did you, what was your assessment of game five? How, how different did the Dodgers look in game five? Well, after what had happened in game four, and I tweeted this out, that could have been a, a disastrous as far as not just losing that game, but the trickle-down effect it could have had uh, in the later games of the series. That could have lost you the series right there. So to see them bounce back, get on the board early, put any issues that they had in game four, because I think we were all collectively stunned. And everybody probably was like, what the heck just happened? Just like you alluded to. So to see them bounce back, get a couple of first inning runs on Tyler Glass now, get the, you know, to really shake off what had happened in game four, I thought was, was key. And anytime you can give your pitcher early run support, it allows them to go out and pitch a little bit more calmly, but at the same point in time, a little bit more aggressively. And you saw that with Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw was not as sharp. In this game five as he was in game one, the breaking stuff, the slider, the curveball, he wasn't throwing it for as many strikes. And he got himself into quite a bit of trouble uh, throughout this game. The leadoff man was aboard in four of the six innings that he had pitched in. So he was kind of battling in and out of trouble. But thanks to some great defense, a double play, a strike him out, throw him out, he was able to contain the damage up until that third inning. And then, of course, as we know what happened, uh, the the Rays got, got a couple of runs in. But once again, Bend, but don't break. We've seen Clayton Kershaw bend and then eventually break. This time he bended, but he didn't break and he didn't cough up the lead. So the Dodgers were able to maintain control. And as the game went on, I thought Kershaw got better. He was able to get more out. He, the strikeouts were going. Congrats to him, by the way, passing Justin Verlander on most postseason strikeouts. And uh, the Dodgers were able to hold on and have a great game. And now Kershaw is now 2-0 and in the postseason. So if the Dodgers end up losing the series, it's not going to be on his watch like the previous two World Series. Absolutely. Kershaw seemed like he found his rhythm later in games. I do agree with that. He was definitely the bamboo. He he been, he was bending, but he did not break. Right. Uh, when you look at, at Clayton Kershaw, I think Clayton also, too, I think the Dodgers took something. They took a little bit of win out of his sale. And I say that because if you look at game four, obviously the game four was was tragic. And I believe that the, that that game took a moment from Clayton Kershaw because imagine if the Dodgers were already up three, one, right now you got Clayton Kershaw to close out the deal. There's been a lot of talk. I've said it. You said it. A lot of people around Southern California and maybe around major league baseball circles have said, Hey man, you know, we made, we made fun of him. We called him Clayton Manning because we, we felt like he was great in the regular season, but couldn't close the deal in the postseason. But this would have been a great, a grand opportunity for him to close it out. Not only as we compared them to the greats like Sandy Koufax and other great Dodgers, who have who've taken the mound uh, wearing that uniform, but it'd been an opportunity for him to be a, a hands-down, solid, first-ballot Hall of Famer because he would not only been able to silence the demons that, and the critics that have criticized him over the course of time, warranted, I might add, but also this would have been a great notch on his resume to say, hey, man, he came in there through heat, did it, you know, did the job that he was, he was commanded to do, and he made sure the Dodgers got their first World Series since 1988. Now we have to wait another game or two until we until the Dodgers can possibly hoist up that trophy. But one guy in particular I want to talk to you about was uh, Max Muncy, because Muncy said on Sunday night 
when they asked him about, you know, focusing on game five uh, because they tried to they had to flush game four. And I'll get into that in a second. But he said, quote, we showed up today and last night never happened to us. We were worried about today and worried about the first pitch and worried about what we were going to do to glass now, end quote. Um, when you look at this Dodger team, what did you see in the beginning? And is, is Max Muncie on point as far as what you saw and what you witnessed from this Dodger team the moment they took the field uh, in game five? Nick, one of the most important things to have as a professional athlete is a short memory. And I think one of the silver linings in that four loss was they had less than 24 hours to flush it out of their system and basically say, listen, game four is done. We lost. We gave it away. We've, we've got to focus on the task at hand, which is taking the, the ball in game five and really trying to reassert some control in the series. We saw them do it earlier in the series. They lost game two, tough fashion. They were down five to nothing. They tried to rally. The rally came up short. So now the series is one, one and, and the, uh, the series shift uh, and the pressure for the, for that series shifted back to the Dodgers. And what happened? Walker Bueller delivers the bats come alive and they end up uh, taking down Charlie Morton in the race game three, the same formula happened tough loss in game four, no matter how it happened, you got to take the field down game five and flush that out. And even Corey Seager said after the game, after we left that clock clubhouse in the locker room in, in game four, it was done. We, we forgot all about it. And, I think the best thing that happened was the fact that game five was Sunday, that they didn't have the day off on, um, you, you know, they didn't have the day off that Sunday to now where it's now 48 hours and that right. too, and it gets into your brain. But Max Muncy has, first of all, he's been tremendous all postseason long. He didn't have the season that he wanted. We all know that. A lot of guys struggled this season, whether it's Christian Yelich or Coach Cody Bellinger or Anthony Rizzo. Max Muncy also struggled. But I tell you, as this postseason has gone on, he was fantastic, and I think the one way he was able to unload on those frustrations was cranking that 99-mile-an-hour fastball from Tyler Glass now 15 rows up into the uh, right field seats at Globe Life Park and doing Deep. a majestic bat drop. So Muncie, I think, and this Dodger team, the one thing we haven't given them enough credit for is mental toughness. They were down 3-1 against the Braves, and what happened? They won three straight. They never lost confidence. They, they lost a stunning game, which could dictate – how the rest of the series goes, what happens, they come back and win game five. So Max Muncy uh, has been tremendous with the bat. I think he could be in consideration for series MVP, uh, but I think he is a symbol for the toughness and the sort of bounce back mentality that this Dodger team had uh, when they were able to secure game five. Well, let's talk about game four, man, because game four is probably one of the wackiest games i have ever witnessed i don't know about you i i have i've witnessed some really crazy games in different sports obviously basketball football hockey sure. college football we've seen them all uh but this was one of the wackiest games i i can recall in a world series moment where the dodgers were actually up by a run and i wrote a piece and i said that the i blame not only dave roberts because i think dave roberts has, has to take a lot, shoulder a lot of that blame but I also blame Kenley Jansen. And I say this because I think Dave Robertson, we talked to him that night on Saturday night, and he admitted that, hey, I left Pedro Baez in too long. I shouldn't have asked him to come back in. Duh. Um, and then he, we, we also looked at, at Kenley Jansen, and I'm like, wait a minute. Now, who did you have in the eighth inning that was pitching well? You have you Bruce Okay, so you had, you had Gratterall, right? He was on a roll. He protected the lead, which he should have. Right. I don't understand for the life of me why you didn't leave him in in the ninth because he seemed to have the hot hand. And usually when you want to win games, you have to have the hot hand, right? You have to have the, the guy that's going to at least give you the better chance. There's no guarantees, but the guy that has the better chance at giving you an opportunity to win that game. Mm -hmm. And you tricked it off and you put, you put Kenley Jansen in there who struggled, I might add, the night before. Fortunately, the Dodgers had more more runs so they can they can give up a run or so because they still were going to be able to win the game right what what do you believe was going through the mind of dave roberts in those Here's, situations well let me let me let me just back it up first of all kenley jansen finished the nlcs on a very high note he retired the side in order in game five and he retired the side in order in game six might i add he also struck out the side in game five against the atlanta braves so he didn't appear in game seven. They decided to roll with Julio Urias, which was also a telling sign that maybe they didn't trust Jansen as much. But then he also, go back to game, uh, go back to game three, right? 
he got those first two guys out, no problem. And now here comes Randy Arozarena. And might I add, Jansen hit 95 on the gun. I can't remember the last time Kenley Jansen threw 95 miles per hour, but he did. So you're throwing him out there in a low leverage situation, not really a save opportunity. And he gave up a, a meaningless solo home run that, by the way, was barely fair. So it was a line drive home run by, by Randy Arozarena, who's who was the ALCS MVP, who is now starting to become one of the Rays' hottest hitters. So here's the thing. You put him out there now, second day in a row, in a one-run game, and you're facing essentially the bottom part of the order. Let me ask you this, Nick. Did he give up hard contact on those two base hits? No. Right. A shattered bat single by Kiermaier that went just past the glove of Kike Hernandez. He walks a Rosarena, which, let's be honest, that was the right move. You have a guy like Brett Phillips on deck, who, by the way, for the Rays, has not made a start in this postseason, has only had two at-bats in this postseason. So it's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm putting the tying and the go-ahead runs aboard, but I got two outs and a guy who doesn't, who hasn't played. I'm going to take my chances with him. He found the hole through the shift. Chris Taylor bobbles the ball. Max Muncy then throws a relay to the home plate. Will Smith can't catch the ball. Arozarena had fallen down on his way to third and then finds his way swimming home, essentially, and tapping home plate for the winning run. So for as much as we want to blame Dave Roberts for not sticking with Bruce Sargratterall, for, for as much as we want to blame Kenley Jansen for not being able to get the big outs, you really have to kind of blame the defense. Chris Taylor and Will Smith somehow managed to be two Bill Buckners in one play. I, I couldn't believe that. So that's that's where I think the blame should fall. So yeah, Kenley should have struck out a Rosarena. Kenley should have gotten Brett Phillips to, to strike out. I agree with you on that. Dave Roberts maybe should have stuck with the hot hand in Bruce Sargratterall. But at the end of the day, I think that was more on Chris Taylor and Will Smith's lack of ability to come up and field the ball cleanly. Well, I don't. Here's why I disagree with you, Juan. I don't. I'm not saying that Will Smith um, doesn't deserve some 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 blame, right? What I'm also saying is this, though. It starts with the management. It starts with the head because you're there. What What is your title, manager? Which means you're supposed to manage. And to me, it felt like Dave Roberts rely more on the analytics than the eye and the gut test because he would I don't think though some of those decisions he probably would not have made if it weren't for the analytics because we saw Dave Roberts manage in game seven against the Atlanta Braves he got away from the analytics and he he decided to look at what physically is in front of him sure. and use his great baseball mind to manage his team and get his team to the next level which is the World Series and it worked my problem is when you rely on the analytics and he's done that time and time again too much. And yeah. so this because I think I think Dave Roberts is an incredible baseball mind. I think he knows the game of baseball that he can manage a team. I mean, hell, you just don't get to the World Series by accident. You have to do things that are going to put your team in, in various situations to, to elevate and be successful. So I don't want to take anything away from Dave Roberts in that regard. But when I look at the times that Kenley Jansen, and this is why I say I blame Kenley Jansen as well, according to baseball reference, remember Jansen lost game five of the World Series against Houston in 2017. Right. He also blew two saves in 2018 against the Boston Red Sox. And now he's blown a save in 2020 against the Tampa Bay Rays. Mm -hmm. And if you notice on Sunday night, I saw where he was, they had Kenley kind of warming up a little bit, and then all of a sudden it stopped. That told me a lot. Yeah. That told me a lot. And I'm saying, okay, the confidence level ain't as high as it once was in Kenny Jansen. Am I wrong in that assessment? Oh, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the case in point, look at game five. Who closed out the game? Blake Trinan. It wasn't Kenley Jansen. I mean, mm -hmm. I know Dave Roberts could say, well, I didn't want to use him two nights in a row. The fact of the matter was you didn't trust Kenley Jansen in a two-run game. Now, Blake Trinan hasn't exactly been Mr. Dependable throughout this postseason. He gave up a go-ahead home run to Austin Riley in game one of the NLDS. He gave up two runs, by the way, even though they fell under Pedro Baez. Uh, Pedro Baez inherited those runners. It was the fact that Trinan did not have his best stuff on, on game four in game four on Saturday night. But yet, Trinan, this is why you brought a guy like that in this season on a one-year deal to basically back up Kenley Jansen as a setup man. But also, if Kenley does not have it going, Let's go to Trinan. And what did he do in game five? He gave up a leadoff single, but then he came out and struck out two of the next three batters. And he and he locked down game five to secure a 3-2 series lead 
for for the Dodgers. So there's clearly no, not much trust with Kenley Jansen at this point. We all know that. But one of the things that makes Dave Roberts an effective manager, but your greatest strength could also be your greatest weakness, is the fact that you entrust guys. You stick with guys. You try to give guys all the encouragement and confidence in the world. That is what he does. You saw it in game five on Sunday night. Clayton Kershaw, five and two-third innings. He pulls him out. He brings in Dustin May, who has struggled throughout this postseason. What does May do? May finishes off the sixth inning, and he gets through the seventh no problem before uh, he gets pulled in the eighth. So what? It, so finally, Dustin May rewarded Dave Roberts for that trust, right? So you're seeing that with Kenley Jansen as well. I'm going to reward this guy because he's been there time and time again, and I'm going to see if he can get me through these moments. However... As we've seen before, these guys have let him down. Clayton Kershaw let him down in 2019, going into the eighth inning and giving up those solo home runs to Rendon and Soto, and ultimately that cost the Dodgers, not to mention sticking with Joe Kelly after he loaded the bases up. So there's been a lot of decisions that have been questionable for Dave Roberts, but I think he does it as a sense of staying positive, trusting his guys who have been reliable for the most part, and not trying to feel like he's abandoning them in the biggest moment because you're still going to need these guys to produce some aspect. We may not always agree, but I'm saying that's the mindset for, uh, for, for Dave Roberts. And sometimes it works and sometimes it hasn't. We've got a couple of minutes uh, left here on, on the show. I want to get into game six. Now, we know Tony Gosselin is going up against Blake Snell, who I call the Dodgers nemesis uh, because he's, been, he's definitely been Thanos. Uh, to the Dodgers, uh, the Dodgers Avengers uh, that we've seen throughout the postseason. What is going to be different in your estimation against Blake Snell? What have the Dod- What do you feel the Dodgers have learned from game two in order to be able to hit off of Blake Snell and hit with guys, they put guys in, in scoring opportunities? And then secondly, will we see an appearance, or should I say a guest appearance, by Alex Wood in game six? Because I believe it's going to be a platoon of pitchers because there is no David Price who the Dodgers Lord knows they could use uh, at any given moment these days. No question. Yeah, it would be great to see David Price throw out there, be thrown out there for game six. Uh, Tony Gonsolin, I'm a big fan of. I'm a big fan of him and May. I think both guys have got very promising careers ahead of them. But right now, this is a this is a big boys game. And you got to put your big boy pants on, as the great the late great Kobe Bryant would say. So Gonsolin I think one of the things that's going to help him in game six was watching how well Dustin May did in game five. I think these two guys have kind of been in the same situation, and I think that they, they're going to try to pick each other up. So uh, as far as Gonsolin goes, I don't know how much of a, of a runway that Dave Roberts is going to give him because here's the thing. These guys are starters. Treat them like starters. Even if they give up a run or two, stick with them. And you've even seen Kevin Cash do that with some of his openers. Like you saw Ryan Yarbrough go four innings at least uh, in, in game number four. So stick with these guys, unless they're getting shelled early on, stick with them. Don't pull them out so quickly. And yeah, you may see an Alex Wood. I think Alex Wood should start the game period because that'll give the race something that that, that they are not prepared for. As far as Blake Snell goes, he's probably their best pitcher. Cy Young award winner back in 2018, no hit the Dodgers through nearly five innings back in game two. But if you, if you notice, go back once again to the NLCS, Max Freed, Ian Anderson, Dominated the Dodgers the first two games of that series. Dodgers see them again in games five and six. They were able to hit them. Hopefully that happens with Blake Snell. If, if they can get to Blake Snell's fastball and able to uh, not hit the curveball or try to lay off of the curveball and he's not throwing it for strikes, they'll be in good shape. But once again, getting some early run support for Gonsolin or Wood or, or whoever we see out of that bullpen is going to be key to that game. And hopefully the Dodgers are able to close out Snell as well as the race. All right, we'll find out. Game six is tonight. Tony Gosselin against the 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 almighty Thanos, or a.k.a. Blake Snell, uh, for the Tampa Bay Rays. I, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I think it goes seven games now. I, I had the Dodgers originally in six, but I think it goes seven now, unless by some sheer miracle um, something happens on, on, in the Dodgers' favor. But uh, I think game seven is definitely going to be one of the, the most watched games we've we've seen in, throughout this postseason for sure. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking time out of your schedule to talk with the Dodgers with me in the World Series. Uh, please let everybody know where they can continue to follow you and keep up with all your work. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Yeah, you can always follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Camelo. I'm on Instagram, see Camelo one Facebook Camelo's Corner by Chris Camelo and download and subscribe to all my podcasts. Uh, Camelo's Corner uh, available on Spotify, 
SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Thanks again, Nick. All right. Thank you so much. We have game six tonight, 5, 10 p.m. on Fox. Tony Gonsolin against Blake Snell. We'll see what happens. Hopefully the Dodgers can come out with a win. But if not, as always, game seven on Wednesday, same time, same station. Thank you so much, Chris Camello. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be right back. Make sure you stay tuned and keep it locked right here. You're listening to TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Slam Radio, Sirius XM 145. This is Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the final segment of TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Sirius XM Slam Radio 145. I'd like to thank my guest, Chris Camello from Nightfall Media and the host of Camello's Corner Podcast for giving us some insight on the Dodgers as the Dodgers take on the Tampa Bay Rays in Game 6 tonight at 5, 10 p.m. on Fox. Can't wait for that game. But, hey, let's talk a little bit about the NFL because it's been a wacky weekend in the NFL, especially the NFC West. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks lost in a close one in overtime against the Arizona Cardinals. Hey, listen. The Arizona Cardinals are creeping on a come up. These guys have gotten it together. I got to give a lot of credit to Cliff Kingsbury. Kyler Murray has played exceptionally well, but they they went out and they traded for a top-notch wide receiver opposite Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, you know, so they have a lot of different weapons um in in uh, you know, Hopkins, um they just have a lot of different weapons and they're playing as a unit and not playing individually, even though they have some names out there that I mentioned, but they're playing as a unit and see, I don't know what the hell Russell West, uh, Wilson rather was throwing to in that last, in that overtime period, because my God, that that's not your typical Russell Wilson. I mean, Russell Wilson is a phenomenal quarterback. I'm not taking anything away from him, uh, but Arizona was able to snap uh, that, that five game winning streak. And Arizona has now moved into a tie uh, for second place because I say that because the Los Angeles Rams on Monday night at SoFi Stadium, a Monday night game, very first Monday night game uh, in, in that stadium's history, was a host to the Chicago Bears. Now, the, we all know the Chicago Bears defense uh, was top notch and phenomenal. But at the same time, the offense was always suspect, especially with Nick Foles. And I think Nick Foles is a decent quarterback. He's much better than Mitchell Busbisky, as I like to call him. I know you're talking about Mitchell Trubisky. Uh, but listen, the Los Angeles Rams, they got they they started out a little slow, but after that first drive, they came back out, moved the chains, moved the ball down the field. And Jared Goff once again continues to amaze. And Jared Goff was able to distribute the football to many different wide receivers. I mean, you look at, obviously, we talk about Robert Woods and Cooper Cup a lot, but Josh Reynolds was really the star of this game when you look at on the offensive side of the ball because, listen, Josh Reynolds, excuse me, Josh Reynolds uh, played phenomenally well. Uh, this is a kid that really doesn't get a lot of shine like he should and a lot of respect that he should because he is a, a, a part of, of that loaded wide receiver core. When you think about Cooper Cup, you think about Robert Woods, Josh Reynolds, the rookie, and Van Jefferson, who I love tremendously. Um, but I like uh, Josh Reynolds, who had four receptions for 52 yards uh, in the TD. And so, to me, I think Josh Reynolds played exceptionally well. You had Cooper Cup, who had six receptions for 43 yards. Um, even Van Jefferson had a catch for 14 yards in, in the first half. Um, but the running game played exceptionally well. Uh, Malcolm Brown had 10 carries for 57 yards and the TD. If you got, if you recall, this is one of the weirdest plays. I actually asked Jared Goff what happened on that play. How, how amazing and weird was that play when you have Malcolm Brown being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and Jared Goff admitted that, Hey, you know what? I got a little bit in on that push as well to help Malcolm get as close to the goal line as possible uh, before he eventually went ahead and scored on a one-yard TD run uh, that gave the uh, solidified, I should say, the lead for the Los Angeles Rams. But let me tell you something. We talk about the NFC least, which is one of the most garbage divisions in the entire NFL. But one of the tougher divisions that I think a lot of people slept on was the NFC is the NFC West. The NFC West is a very tough division. I mean, I think San Francisco, with all their injuries, are starting to come along and come back into the fold. You look at what Seattle has done up until 
uh, Sunday night when they lost to the Arizona Cardinals in a tight game. Uh, they won. They lost by a field goal. And you look at the Arizona Cardinals, but I'm telling you, the Los Angeles Rams, they look complete. I mean, that defense with Aaron Donald. And mind you, Aaron Donald got his very first sack on Nick Foles of his entire career. I know it was a half a sack along uh, with uh, – who was this half a sack with? Greg Gaines, I'm sorry. Uh, that was a half a sack with Greg Gaines. But listen, the, 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 the game ball deservingly went to Leonard Floyd, who had two sacks on against his former team. And also Sean McVay gave the, the, the game ball to defensive coordinator Brandon Staley, who was used to be the uh, defensive coordinator with uh, – the Chicago Bears. So, listen, the Rams are rolling. If they could continue to stay healthy, um, if they could continue to continue, you know, have the offense flow the way that it needs to flow, I'm telling you, this is going to be a very, very tough division. And I'm going to say this right now on this here radio show, on this here station, I'm going to say that I think two or three of the wild cards in the NFC are going to come out of the NFC West. That's how confident I feel that that this division is in the NFL. I think it's one of the most competitive uh, divisions in the NFL. I know there's some AFC teams that probably would argue me down and want to have a a talk with me, but I'm I'm looking at the NFC West and how loaded they are. You got some great, you have all four teams are really phenomenal teams. And we couldn't say that probably two or three years ago. We couldn't say that, but every team has definitely improved. Uh, they've been able to continue to elevate themselves. You look at the Los Angeles Rams, the Arizona Cardinals. There wasn't much talk about the Rams and the Cardinals this year. The more focus was on the Seattle Seahawks and obviously the 49ers coming off that Super Bowl run where they fell a little bit short last season. Uh, but I'm telling you, this is a division that's going to be tough. They're going to pound the living daylights out of one another. Um, the Rams have a tougher schedule. Uh, they, they're going to visit Miami and and, and two is going to get a real healthy dose of Aaron Donald and company and welcome him into the NFL uh, in about a I'll say about a, less than a week. Then they come back to face the Seattle Seahawks and it's going to be a tough schedule from from here on out when it comes to the Los Angeles Rams. So they got their work cut out for them. They got to stockpile these wins as much as they can, along with the rest of the NFC West with Seattle and Arizona and San Francisco. Um, it's going to be a dog fight and I can't, I, early on, I, I did, you know, predict, I thought that the Seattle Seahawks would take the division, but now I'm not so sure anymore. It's going to, I think it's going to be a complete dog fight. I think it's going to come down to the last couple of weeks of the season to see who actually wins the division, barring any serious injury from any of the teams that I've mentioned, uh, with their star players. And so, you know, it will find out and see what happens. But speaking of SoFi Stadium and in Los Angeles, I was actually uh, on Sunday at the game uh, when it comes to uh, Justin Herbert and the Los Angeles Chargers, who snapped a four-game losing streak against the Jacksonville Jaguars, who actually had the game and pretty much tricked it off. Um, When you look at what Justin Herbert brings to this table, uh, we've seen him throw up some phenomenal games in the last few games, 300-plus yards in every performance. Uh, Justin Herbert is the real deal. I'm here to tell you he is definitely the real deal. He's not just a rookie from Oregon uh, that's just going to get skate by. He takes hits. He's very poised in the pocket. He knows how to move around. Yes, he's made some mistakes as a rookie should make mistakes, but he's definitely bounced back and learned from them. But the key is this team really, truly believes in him. The guys in the locker room really believe in him. Um, When speaking with Melvin Ingram, uh, who returned on Sunday, you know, just asking him, what does he learn? Uh, what does Justin Herbert learn from him? Rather, he says, you know what? He's learned from me and I definitely learned from him. And this is what we do. We just don't have one leader on on both sides of the ball. Every guy has opportunity to speak and lead in their own way. And uh, this is a very tight knit team, tight knit team. When you look at Justin Herbert for a young man of his stature to be six, six, but a young man to be drafted uh, the number six overall pick in the first round to a franchise in the second largest market. Uh, that's saying a whole lot for the pressure just to be in Los Angeles, not only be able to perform at a high level. I mean, rem- remember, this is the same dude that had to be called up on the fly. He he had no time to prepare um, when Tyrod Taylor was unable to perform because he uh, he had a punctured lung. And so Justin Herbert got the call against the Kansas City Chiefs, the Super Bowl champs. 
and played and played well in that game. Um, you look at when he went up against Tom Brady, it was a second half shootout between the Bucks and the Chargers. And then you look at the New Orleans Saints, where they were just a couple of plays away from actually winning that game. So you knew the wins were uh, were going to start to stockpile at some point. And they finally got the monkey off their back. They they beat the Jacksonville Jaguars 39 to 29 on Sunday, getting their first win at SoFi Stadium. Uh Justin Herbert threw for 347 yards. He had three touchdowns and even ran for a touchdown uh, to go with 66 rushing yards. It was his third start of the season uh, where he threw for 300 yards. Um, He continues to impress. Uh, Anthony Lynn spoke highly of him about the physical tools where he can beat you with his legs, he can beat you with his arm, and those are the type of intangibles and those type of things that impress Anthony Lynn as well as the coaching staff. As he continues to learn, and a lot again, I can't say this enough. A lot of credit goes out to Pep Hamilton, who continues to work with this young man and continues to prepare this young man week in and week out. So I think that that can never be overlooked uh, when it comes to uh, Justin Herbert and his, his continued development and growth. Uh, now that the Chargers will move on to the Denver Broncos and play them in Denver next Sunday, uh, or this coming Sunday, I should say however you want to title it, but they got to play the Denver Broncos and then they return home after that to face the Las Vegas Raiders. So it should be a very interesting stretch for the Los Angeles Chargers, but it's always good when you get that first win, you get that monkey off your back. Now you can kind of exhale, breathe a little bit, enjoy it, and then get prepared for the next opponent and try to stockpile a second win and stockpile a third win and move forward and try to get up to at least 500 uh, in the next few weeks. So, We'll see what happens with the Los Angeles Chargers. But I'm telling you, Justin Herbert is a guy who I believe should be rookie of the year if he continues to put up these types of numbers. I know Joe Burrow uh, can play ball. He can ball. I know he's the number one pick. But damn it, Justin Herbert is that dude that is versatile. He is poised. Uh, He's a guy guy that doesn't get easily rattled. And they're starting to stockpile some wins. And that's going to be crucial. And that's going to be key. And I expect him to be the rookie of the week once again, uh, as he's done a couple of times before uh, this season. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Justin Herbert. Cleveland Browns. We all make fun of the Cleveland Browns. I've always said I like Baker Mayfield. I think he's a good player, but I think Baker Mayfield is not the player that everybody thinks that he is. I don't think he's that great. I think he's average. I think he's, he's suitable for what they want him to do. Uh, but he makes more appearances on commercials than he does on the field and making plays. But he's going to be without his star wide receiver for the rest of the season, and that's brother Odell Beckham Jr., who uh, on a tackle, it was a fluke play. If you guys recall, it was a fluke play. He tried to make a tackle. We end up finding out he was he was in severe pain. They carted him off. We find out on Monday that he's going to be out because he has a torn ACL. Uh, which is definitely devastating to the Cleveland Browns offense and to that entire team because he is a, definitely a major contributor to that team. Uh, OBJ is a, is a, a, a an exquisite talent. Uh, this guy can, I mean, not just the one-hand grabs, but the, his knowledge of the game, his approach to the game, and say what you want. Yeah, he has a lot of antics, and some people don't like it. Some of the things I question, uh, we all know about the – the two-year ban from LSU because he was on the sidelines during the national championship, if you recall, passing out money to the players on camera, which is a bonehead move to do because you know how the NCAA loves and salivates over trying to drop sanctions on certain programs, LSU being one of them, and you give them bait and you give them evidence to go ahead and move towards that direction. Not a smart move, OBJ. Really disappointed in you on that on that tip. But let me tell you something. I love watching OBJ play on Sundays. I love watching him run routes. I love watching him catch the football. And that's something I'm definitely going to miss along, I'm sure, with the Cleveland Browns fans uh, when it comes to not seeing Odell Beckham Jr. on Sundays as he gets uh, you know, prepared for the 2021 season. Hopefully he can rehab, has a strong recovery. But when you look at his injury history, this is not the first time he's had a major injury. In 2017, he had a fractured ankle. 2018, he had bruised uh, quadriceps. And in 2019, he had a core muscle injury that kept him sidelined for a while. So this is not the first time he's had a major, major injury. 
uh, that's kept him out of action. So you kind of got to start looking at, okay, if I'm Odell Beckham and if I'm another team or the Cleveland Browns for right now, I got to got to be cautious and see how much shelf life this guy has left in him. Because when you got these, these injuries year in and year out, they take, they take its toll on his production level and it takes its toll on his body. Uh, so I got to look at that and, and, and see how that's going to fall out as it pertains to where that lies with the Cleveland Browns and his career moving forward because it's going to be key. He's got to stay healthy. If he wants any chance of getting out of Cleveland, he's got to stay healthy an entire season, put up some big numbers. We know how talented he is. We know he can, he can you know, make the big plays and run the best routes uh, for that for that franchise. But if he has any hope of getting out of Cleveland and any team wants to sniff around him to get him out of Cleveland, he's got to stay healthy a whole entire season. Without that, it's a no-go, period, point blank. All right, you all, oh, thank you so much for tuning in to TMA with Nick Hamilton here on Slam Radio, Sirius XM 145. Make sure you follow me on all things social media, at Nick Hamilton LA. I'd like to thank uh, my producer, Gerald. I'd like to thank uh, Slam Radio. I'd like to thank everybody in the staff at Slam Radio. I'd like to thank all the staff at Nightfall Media. Thank you so much. Please be safe. Stay sharp. I'm out. The views and opinions expressed on TMA with Nick Hamilton, Extra Dose, are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Slam Radio.